I love hearing those kids' voices. <laughs> Chills are still going all over me from that song. Oh. Mm. So today we get to read um, the, the passage before Mike preaches, Second Samuel, and it's chapter 5. I'm going to read verses 1 through 3 and then skip to 9 through 12. And I chose to read out of the message today because it just flows really well as a story. So David was 30 years old when he became king, and he ruled for 40. Wait a minute. That is not right. Let me back up. Verse 1. Before long, all the tribes of Israel approached David in Hebron and said, Look at us, your own flesh and blood. In time past, when Saul was our king, you were the one who really ran the country. Even then, God said to you, you will shepherd my people Israel, and you will be the prince. All the leaders of Israel met with King David at Hebron, and the king made a treaty with them in the presence of God. And so... They anointed David king over Israel. In verse 9, David made the fortress city his home and named it City of David. He developed the city from the outside terraces inward. David proceeded with a longer stride, a larger embrace, since the God of the angel armies was with him. It was at this time that Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David, along with timbers of cedar. He also sent carpenters and masons to build a house for David. David took this as a sign that God had confirmed him as king of Israel, giving his kingship world prominence for the sake of of Israel, his people, the word of the Lord. Good morning. morning. It's great to see everyone this morning. My name is Mike Stroh. I'm one of the pastors here. Let me add my welcome to any guests who are with us today and just everyone that's gathered here to worship this morning. Power tends to corrupt. If you've heard this before, you know the rest of it. An absolute power corrupts? Absolutely, right. Absolutely right. Good job. Uh, That's from Lord Acton, British historian and politician, who famously said those words, power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And maybe even more striking than that famous, more famous part is the words that follow. He said that great men are almost always bad men. Sadly, most of us probably agree, if we're honest, if we know history at all, we'd probably agree with his assessment of humanity, because power really does tend to corrupt. We could name countless leaders and dictators in history and in our lifetime, whose power, whose rise to power really brought out the worst in them. It's not just power, though, that really tends to corrupt. It's 
It can be any kind of success. Any kind of abundance can be our downfall if we're not careful. Think of fame and all of those celebrities that we've seen over the years just sort of crumble. They can't handle all that attention. Uh, Think of money, those people who come into money, especially suddenly, like lottery winners. Many of their lives have been ruined because they won the lottery. They just couldn't handle it. And of course, even wealth gained through hard work can become our idol. We tend to think that trials and hardships are the hardest, hardest tests that we go through that test our character, that reveal who we are, but often it's successes that are an even greater test. Trials have a way, and we all know this by experience as believers, trials have a way of encouraging us to draw nearer to God, reminding us of our dependence and our need to trust Him. But success and abundance and power have a way of letting us get complacent in our faith. Even worse to think that in our, in our pride, we've achieved it all, all that we have, without God's help. Well, we're continuing uh, in the life of David. We've called the series Pursuing God's Heart. David's known a, uh, as the man after God's own heart. <clears throat> we've seen him endure countless trials so far in his story, if you've been tracking with us over the last several weeks. He's certainly not perfect, and we'll see that even more so in the coming weeks, but we've seen David pursuing God's heart, even in the deepest valleys of his experiences. But now this long, hard road to the throne is finally clear, and we finally get to see him endure this greater test of success, of power, victory. And how will he handle it? We'll walk through a few brief episodes here in 2 Samuel chapter 5, and we'll see how David responds. Because this example shows us that as men and women pursuing God's heart, he shows us how we can keep God first in our lives no matter what we're dealing with, no matter if we're in a season of trial or in a season of blessing and abundance. So let's pray as we turn uh, to this passage of Scripture. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for another Sunday to gather in your presence as your people. Speak to us now through your spirit, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, I literally just realized as I was just about to come up here, um, as we enter into this Independence Day weekend, really, um, that the sermon is about the anointing of a king. And that I quoted a British politician known as Lord So I apologize for that, Uh, all unintentional. But 2 Samuel 5, let's see if we can get back on track, uh, thanks to God's word here. 2 Samuel 5, look at verse 1, I'm reading from the CSB. All the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Here we are, your own flesh and blood. Even while Saul was king over us, you were the one who led us out to battle and brought us back. The Lord also said to you, You will shepherd my people Israel, and you will be ruler over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron. King David made a covenant with them at Hebron in the Lord's presence, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began his reign. He reigned 40 years. In Hebron, he judged over Judah seven years and six months, and in Jerusalem, he reigned 33 years over all Israel and Judah. So last week, if you're with us, we saw that he was made king of just Judah, for a time there. And now it's not just Judah, it's finally all the tribes. It's finally the promise that he was given so many years before. Uh, 
all the tribes now acknowledge that not only is he the best choice for the job, he's God's choice for the job. This day that seemed for so long would never come is finally here for David. He's gone from running for his life to reigning over this whole nation. As we've said already, human nature is that most people can't handle this kind of power, this dramatic rise to power and abundance. Will he stay the man after God's own heart, or will he become consumed with his own greatness like so many do? Well, if you know his story, he doesn't take a vacation. First thing he does getting into office, he gets right to work. Verse 6, the king and his men marched to Jerusalem against the Jebusites who inhabited the land. The Jebusites had said to David, you will never get in here. Even the blind and lame can repel you, thinking David can't get in here. So David's first official act as king, the first recorded act as king, is he sets his eyes on a new capital city for the nation. Now, as king of uh, Judah, he's, his capital, his home base has been in Hebron, but now he chooses a spot which is on the border of Judah, but technically in the northern tribe's inheritance, which is a pretty smart play. Uh, he doesn't want them to think, he doesn't want the nation to think that he's just favoring Judah, and so he wants to establish a new a capital city. This is another example of his diplomatic skills and his wisdom. But more importantly than all of that, David is showing his obedience to God's word. God told the people through Moses that the Canaanites would be eliminated, should be eliminated from the land. But these pesky Jebusites, if you've uh, followed the story all the way through Joshua and in Judges, it just keeps saying they couldn't drive out the Jebusites. The Jebusites had the high ground in Jerusalem, if you know the geography over there, and the fortress that they held was secure, and so they taunted David with these words. Even the blind and lame could repel you, David. You can't get in here. Now, there would have been easier ways for David to start his tenure as king over the nation than trying to take Jerusalem. If he just wanted to get his approval rating up, he, there's plenty of things he could have done, but he chose this difficult thing. You may remember from his fight with Goliath that he doesn't uh, take too well to uh, insults and taunts and threats. He's not scared away by them, and he's not here either. David shows his bravery again. While so many had failed before to take out the Jebusites, David knew with God's help he could do it. Sure enough, verse 7, yet David did capture the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David. He said that day, whoever attacks the Jebusites must go through the water shaft to reach the lame and the blind who are despised by David. For this reason, it is said, the blind and the lame will never enter the house. Now, this isn't saying that David hated uh, blind and lame people. Remember, this is going back to their taunt. These blind and lame self-proclaimed uh, in the fortress who made themselves David's enemy. That's who David's talking about here, these Jebusites. And he masterminds this plan for his men to get into this supposedly impregnable stronghold to get in through the water shaft. Your translation might say something different. A lot of translations say something like uh, water shaft. There were natural water channels that would have led into the city, maybe through the rock that he could have used to get in. Unfortunately, the Hebrew word here is really rare. Uh, it could be translated a few different ways, and scholars aren't quite sure exactly what is meant here. So we don't know exactly what David did to get in, but we know it worked. He masterminded this plan to get in, and it worked. Verse 9, David took up residence in the stronghold, which he named the city of David. He built it up all the way around from the supporting terraces 
inward. So David starts off his reign with this decisive victory against all odds. Now, most people in David's shoes would be tempted to think this achievement was thanks to his own ability, right? His own brilliance, his own leadership. And the text is clear. I mean, he's a, he's a military strategist. He planned this out. He could have taken the credit because power tends to corrupt, right? Verse 10, here we go. David became more and more powerful. Uh-oh. And the Lord God of armies was with him. Verse 11, King Hiram of Tyre sent envoys to David. He also sent cedar logs, carpenters, and stonemasons, and they built a palace for David. Then David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel and had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. The author is really careful to show us some things about David and how he's handling this power and success that would be a contrast to so many other, including Saul, so many other kings of their time. David is growing more and more powerful. Why? Verse 10, because the Lord is with David. The Lord of armies was with him. David is a military strategist. David is a great warrior, but it's the Lord of armies who's actually the one equipping him, enabling him. David knew that who established him as king? Verse 11, the Lord did. Why did God exalt David's kingdom? Just because David was so great and he deserved all the praise and honor? No, just verse 12, for the sake of his people Israel. You see how careful the author is to frame this. David knew that biblical leadership is servant leadership. Even the highest position in the land here was the king, the king of all Israel. This, even that position was meant in service of God for the flourishing of God's people. And so David shows us here that it's possible to be faithful to God in great prosperity, in great power, in great blessing and success, but only if we keep our eyes on God. If we keep coming back to who gave us the gift, knowing that all belongs to God, Whatever God decides to give us, however little or how much money or success or influence, all of it is to be stewarded for the advance of God's kingdom and for the good of God's people. And so far, again, the author is clear to show us, David has passed this success test with flying colors. He's been faithful to God in the darkest valleys, and now he stays faithful to pursue God even as king. But while we can learn a lot from David's life and example, and I trust we have been, let's not forget David's descendant, the Lord Jesus, is our only true example. Because David was far from perfect, and we'll see that even more in the coming weeks. But the next few verses really foreshadow some of those failures. Look at verse 13. After he arrived from Hebron, David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem, and more sons and daughters were born to him. These are the names of those born to him in Jerusalem, Shemua, Shobab, Nathan, Solomon, Ibhar, Elishua, Nepheg, Jephiah, Elishama, Eliada, and Eliphalet. David knew the Torah. He knew Deuteronomy 17, which clearly says kings should not acquire many wives for themselves. Why? Lest their heart turn away. David knew it, but how many is many wives, right? How many is many? Is it two? Is it a hundred? I guess that was subjective, David thought. He must have interpreted that command rather loosely. I'll just add a few more here and there, right? 
David could have easily excused himself here because it was custom for kings in the ancient world to have many wives, many concubines, to strengthen diplomatic relationships. So it was strategic. If you know the rest of David's story, you know in the coming weeks we'll see in this area specifically, David has his greatest failure. But for now, the author doesn't say too much. It's just sort of a little foreshadowing. Oh, and by the way, he's getting more and more wives and concubines. But despite this blind spot in David's life, and we all have those blind spots, he maintains his pursuit of God. Verse 17, when the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, they all went in search of David. But he heard about it and went down to the stronghold. So the Philistines came and spread out in Rephaim Valley. Then David inquired of the Lord, should I attack the Philistines? Will you hand them over to me? The Lord replied to David, Attack, for I will certainly hand the Philistines over to you. So David went to Baal-perazim and defeated them there and said, Like a bursting flood, the Lord has burst out against my enemies before me. Therefore he named that place, The Lord Bursts Out. The Philistines abandoned their idols there, and David and his men carried them off. So David has a pretty complicated relationship with the Philistines, to say the least. But now that he's king of the whole nation of Israel, any goodwill that the Philistines had toward David is is gone. They want him dead. He's still riding high from his conquest of Jerusalem. David could have easily rested at any point here, rested on his own ability as a great warrior. I've got the power. I'm the king. I get things done. But notice David's immediate response to the threat. Verse 19, he asked God what to do. God said, go. David defeats them easily. And again, yet again, it would be tempting for David to think, look at what I accomplished. Look how easy this was for me. But what is he very intentional here to say? Verse 20, like a bursting flood, I defeated all. No, the Lord burst out against my enemies. He even names the place accordingly. As if to say, God gets all the credit. Don't you dare give me the credit. Don't build a monument here in my honor. Let's name this place, the Lord bursts out against our enemies. Verse 22, the Philistines came up again and spread out in Rephaim Valley. So David inquired of the Lord. You see the repetition here, sensing a pattern. And he answered, do not attack directly, but circle around behind them and come at them opposite the balsam trees. When you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, act decisively For then the Lord will have gone out ahead of you to strike down the army of the Philistines. So David did exactly as the Lord commanded him, and he struck down the Philistines all the way from Geba to Gezer. Same thing again, right? Rather than trust his own strength and power, what does David do? He seeks after God. When God delivers, yet again, David is sure to give God the glory rather than taking it for himself. The author's emphasis is very clear. All the way to the last verse, what does it say? David did exactly as the Lord commanded him. David is so careful here to maintain this pursuing of God. Every step of the way, before the action, during the action, and after to give God the glory. Now, trials are tough. We've seen this in David's life. Of course, we've seen it in our own lives. But we've all experienced, again, the way that maybe those trials have brought us closer to God. To trust that God will show up when we don't have anywhere else to turn. 
But success and blessing can make us think that we're doing okay on our own. Have you ever been there? Or even if we thank God initially for the blessing that he pours out on us, our hearts can so easily slide into complacency. Maybe we don't need to pray, or we do pray, but maybe not with the same desperation, the same dependence. Because after all, we're secure. After all, we're stable. Our bills are being paid. But if we keep our eyes on God, we never lose sight of the, the true reality. Everything we have is a gift. However little, however much. Rather than getting lifted up with pride in our accomplishments, we can thank God for our health. We can thank God for our talents, our abilities. I think of the Apostle Paul as someone who knew how to follow God in all seasons of life, in trial and in abundance. His words in Philippians 4, maybe you know where I'm going already. These words are often thought of in terms of contentment, which is very appropriate. But in this passage, it's also about Paul staying true to who he is in Christ, no matter the circumstances. Here's what he says. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. In other words, I can walk with God in any circumstance. Not I can get whatever I want. I can do all things. I can be with Christ in any circumstance. I can be in any circumstance as a believer because in hunger, I know that Christ will ultimately sustain me. In abundance, I know that everything I have is from Christ. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, this text points us to the truth that everything we have is from God. And if you doubt God's love for you, we look again and again to the cross where God gave us the greatest gift, the gift of his Son, to give us life through the death of Jesus. Because Jesus never promises us health and prosperity, despite what the prosperity preachers like to say. In fact, he promises the opposite. We, we might have success, we might have abundance, but we're guaranteed trial. But he equips us through his indwelling spirit to pursue him, even in abundance, even in great blessing. Where do you find yourself right now? What, what season of life are you in now? Maybe you're in a season of trial, a dark valley. We've been learning from David's example in his suffering that God is with us, and in a very unique way in suffering, God draws near to us. He invites us to draw close to him in dependence. We can remember that our suffering isn't evidence of God's lack of love for us, but if we keep our eyes on the suffering of Jesus Christ on the cross for us, we can see that God is with us. He knows our pain. He knows our grief. He knows the worry that is so heavy on our hearts. And so we need to keep on giving it to him. Keep on drawing near to God in desperate prayer. Maybe you see yourself growing in this season of trial that you might be going through. What do you think is going to happen when those circumstances change? Will you continue on the path that you're on of growing, of growing independence? So you need to commit today while you're in the valley, that you're going to keep seeking God when you're out of the valley. 
We need to commit with God's help not to be derailed by a sudden change of circumstances. Maybe you're in a different season. Maybe you're in a season of stability, abundance. Are you giving thanks to God for all he's given you? Like David, let's, let's make a big deal about what God's given us. I mean, David named a place after it, right? Let's give ourselves as many reminders as we need. For all the people in our lives, let's remind them constantly what God has been doing in our lives and what we see God doing in their lives. Maybe it's a post on social media. Maybe it's keeping a prayer journal so you can go back and be reminded of all the ways God has blessed you. We should all make gratitude a daily part of our prayer practice. And if we make it a habit in hard times, we're more likely to stick with it in the easier times. Gratitude helps us remember that everything we have is God's. Our money, our talents, our resources, our influence, instead of hoarding all that we have selfishly, we're freed in Christ to steward it well, to share it with others. See, power tends to corrupt. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. We can all agree on that, right? But in Christ, we can live differently. Christ frees us to live differently than that, to live according to the fall. We can learn from David in a lot of ways, but again, let's remember, keep our eyes on our true king. How did Jesus wield his power as the Son of God when he came to live among us? Paul tells us in Philippians 2, Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he what? Emptied himself. By assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you that in Christ you offer us so much more than what the world offers. When the world offers us a promise, a guarantee of corruption, you offer us the promise of eternal life, blessing, forgiveness, reconciliation with you and with one another. 